You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the latest on the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Now, let me repeat. This is the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin and no one else. The crowd of people who witnessed the police kill George Floyd are not on trial. And neither is George Floyd himself, as the defense seems to be trying to suggest. Let's be clear. Derek Chauvin is the man who, as we've learned from his former colleagues, was not following police department procedures and policies when he held his knee on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. Use of force, force expert Jody Steiger, a sergeant with the LAPD, returned to the stand today and made it clear that force should not have been used once George Floyd was handcuffed and on the ground and that the risks were very well known. Because at the time of the restraint period, Mr. Floyd was not resisting. He was in, in the prone position. Um, he, he was handcuffed. He was not attempting to uh, evade. He was not attempting to resist. And the pressure um, that he was that was being caused by the body weight uh, would uh, could cause positional asphyxia, which could cause death. Two days ago, the emergency room doctor who received Floyd at the hospital said it was his belief that the cause of Floyd's death was, in fact, a lack of oxygen. The defense is trying its best to dispute that. During a longer-than-usual cross-examination, attorney Eric Nelson put the spotlight on George Floyd. Nelson played part of a police body cam video and claimed that Floyd can be heard saying something that I frankly can't imagine anyone has ever heard anyone say, quote, I ate too many drugs. And after getting the next witness, James Ryerson, the Minnesota law enforcement agent in charge of investigating Mr. Floyd's death, to initially agree with him, Ryerson then undercut the defense in his recross by the prosecution. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. Did it appear that Mr. Floyd said, I ate too many drugs? Yes, it did. Having heard it in context, you're able to tell uh, what Mr. Floyd is saying there? Yes, I believe Mr. Floyd was saying, I ain't doing no drugs. Now, according to the defense, George Floyd's history of drug use should be fair game, but Derek Chauvin's past history of multiple complaints against him as a law enforcement officer should be off limits. The defense also wants to focus on the menacing crowd that must have had the police officers scared for their lives, a terrifying mob that included smartphone-wielding teenagers and a nine-year-old girl. Now, it's worth asking whether anyone could reasonably consider that small but, yes, increasingly agitated crowd, which was crying out for mercy for George Floyd and getting no response from Chauvin and the other officers. Could anyone really consider them to be a threat? When you reviewed the body-worn cameras, did you see anybody throw any rocks or bottles? No, I did not. Did you see anyone attack, physically attack the officers? No, I did not. Did you hear uh, foul language or name calling? There was some name calling, yes, but uh, and some foul language. 
but that was about the most of it. Did that factor into your analysis? Uh, no. Why not? Because I did not perceive them as being a threat. And, and why is that? Uh, because they were merely filming and they were most of it was their concern for Mr. Floyd. Steiger also added that given Chauvin completed more than 800 hours of training over his nearly two decades on the force, he should have been well prepared to handle such a threatening horde of bystander rapscallions. And joining me now is Paul Butler, professor at the Georgetown University Law Center and a former federal prosecutor, and Kirk Buckhalter, professor at New York Law School and a former NYPD detective. And I want to go to you first, Mr. Buckhalter, because you were a police officer. Uh, Mr. Steiger, who was a defense um, expert who they brought in from the LAPD, he testified that he himself, as a police officer, had faced real hostile crowds, not like a nine-year-old girl and some teenagers who were filming and yelling, but people throwing rocks and bottles. Can you sort of delineate for us, just as a law enforcement officer, you faced crowds, right? And can a crowd impact whether or not you're allowed to use deadly force on somebody that you're holding? Well, it's a good question, Joy. Uh, thank you for having me. So a crowd could only impact uh, that use of deadly force if for some reason that crowd is perceived to be a threat. Now, I will say that, uh, you know, if you have an issue with people cursing at you and yelling at you, then the police department is no place for you to be employed because this is something that people do. And we have something called the First Amendment in this country. And this is a country where folks can express themselves and express their thoughts and, and so forth with government. That's a big difference between a perceiving a, a crowd as a threat, a group of people as a threat. And I'll just go a step further, that if that crowd was not, if that was not a crowd of predominantly African-American people, this argument would not pass the laugh test, right? So we see crowds of people all the time, engaged in all types of activities. But it's a narrative here that for some reason, uh, this crowd was a threat. And let's go a step further. If you perceive them a threat, well, perhaps it's because you were engaged in the act of snuffing the life out of someone in front of them. So there are just so much, so much irony here uh, with regards to the defense's approach to this crowd. Absolutely. And I apologize. I mispronounced your last name, Mr. Burkhalter. Thank you very much. Appreciate those points Fine. that you're making. You know, and, you know, Paul, we have seen crowds of white armed citizens, you know, barraging into state houses, wielding AR-15s and because they're mad about having to wear masks. We've seen um, people who are pro open carry wielding AR-15s, walking down the street, yelling at police, telling them you don't have the right to disarm me. Like we've seen people get in the faces of police. Those people don't get shot. Those people don't get held to the ground and choked out. So that argument seems to me to be pretty ludicrous. But I want to point you toward you can comment on that. But there was, I thought, a even more absurd argument made by Mr. Nelson today. And that is that, in, that he's trying to claim that George Floyd, while being held down in the car, said, I ate too many drugs. Which strikes me as something that no one has ever said ever in life, rather than. I ain't had no, I ain't done no drugs, which is what you can hear him say. Your thoughts on that? So first, the problem with the defense argument about the crowd is that last week the jury met the people in the crowd. The brave right. teenage girl who made the video, the EMT first responder who begged Chauvin to let her take Mr. Floyd's pulse. Charles McMillan, the older gentleman who broke down in sobs because he couldn't save Mr. Floyd's life. The crowd doesn't look like a vicious, angry mob. 
the jury might think the people in the crowd dealt with Mr. Floyd more responsibly than Chauvin did. And unfortunately, the prosecutor has to respond to the argument that Mr. Floyd died of a drug overdose. And this is just the beginning of a, a long, dirty pathway. So next week, the defense has its own videotape from an arrest of Mr. Floyd in 2019. It starts out like his encounter with Chauvin. Cops approach the car. Uh, they take out their gun. And Mr. Floyd then appears to swallow some pills. And that time, the cops took him to the hospital. So the defense wants the, the jury to think that Mr. Floyd did the same thing when Chauvin arrested him. But this time, when he swallowed the pills, they killed him. It, here's the problem with that, uh, in my mind. And you are the expert, sir. I'm, so I'm going to ask you, Mr. Burkhalter. If, in fact, George Floyd swallowed some pills in the back of the squad car and was in the process of having a drug overdose that the officers deemed could be fatal. Would the appropriate law enforcement response be to sit on him for nine minutes while he died rather than use the Narcan that we keep hearing about and trying to stop the drug overdose or in other or otherwise trying to save his life? Because staying on top of him and putting three people's full body weight on him does not seem like the appropriate law enforcement response to a drug overdose, even if you think that's what's happening. That is that is absolutely correct. So the police have a duty to um, not only care for the lives and the health welfare of victims, but the lives and welfare of those whom they arrest. There is no sliding scale with the United States Constitution. So if the police believe that he was in some type of medical distress, they had a duty to take some form of action. Narcam, call EMS immediately. Certainly not just keep your foot on a uh, knee, rather, on his neck. Uh, for nine and a half minutes. And that's very important, nine and a half minutes. So if one did believe that he was engaged in some form of medical emergency overdose and so forth, that's 10 minutes. I mean, we've been, we haven't even been talking for nine and a half minutes. Your show hasn't right. been on for nine and a half minutes yet. This is how long the police witnessed this man in medical distress and did not take action. So once again, that argument, you know, really shouldn't fly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to really quickly play George Floyd's brother. Um, uh, this is Rodney Floyd, who, who had some comments about the treatment of the experts, by the way, many of whom are themselves law enforcement. Here's what George uh, Floyd's brother had to say. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. These are expert witnesses 
they well qualified in the field and just watching the strategies he used, trying to just find the crack in these men and women that's testifying about the expertise, all the training they had. And that just blows my mind, just the tactics they use to try to break down an incredible witness. What do you make of that, Paul? Because it does seem like once the, as you said about the witnesses, the jury's now met these witnesses and they're quite esteemed and the prosecution's gone a long way towards saying, tell me about your background. Tell me about how you got into law enforcement. Is it a good tactic to try to undercut their credibility? So, Joy, defense cross-examination is a bunch of jabs, which is typical. It's, it's hard to score a knockout punch against experienced witnesses like expert witnesses. So they're trying to say that Chauvin still needed to pin Floyd down because at some point Floyd could have suddenly started fighting. But the expert said that police don't make life or death decisions about the use of force based on what somebody possibly might do. They're supposed to assess what's actually happening. Right. And, you know, Mr. Burkhardt, the other sort of argument is the sort of awful but lawful argument that we heard made today, that it may look bad on camera, but it's legal and therefore uh, one should exonerate uh, Mr. Chauvin. But it feels a lot like kind of the Rodney King argument, what you just heard Paul Butler say, that essentially, you know, once you a black man um, has any drugs in his system, he's sort of like Superman. He's going to rise from the dead, even though he is in complete arrhythmia, has no uh, pulse and is therefore essentially dead. But he's going to somehow rise from the dead and become a threat to four officers. That feels very Rodney King. Do you think that that argument still works, you know, what, 30 years later, how many, however many years, decades later? No, I, I don't believe it works. And one primary reason is police officers make arrests with regards to people who resist every single day. If this was standard operating procedure, someone would die in police custody once every five minutes. And it simply doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because, as you saw, the litany of law enforcement officials testify that there are standards. When someone ignores those standards, crosses over the line, this is what happens. So that doesn't uh, occur. And then this drug Superman, uh, you know, this plays into another wildly unfortunate narrative in this country. And let's just face the facts that George Floyd is a very tall, large black man. And in some ways, the argument that's being promulgated here is that he was to be feared based on who he was before you even had a chance to speak to him or know him, right? Just based on his yep. appearance. He's someone yep. to be feared. These arguments the are, are somewhat disturbing. Yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. No, they're quite disturbing. But like the, that he's the literal boogeyman that even after he is dead, he still poses a threat to officers, as you said, because it is this myth about black men that are literally uh, the boogeyman. It is absolutely shocking to see that done in the 21st century. But I appreciate both of you, Paul Butler, Kirk Burkhalter. Thank you both for being here this evening. Still ahead on the readout. New reporting suggests that thank you that Matt Gates sought a preemptive pardon from Trump while he was still in office, which raises new questions about when Gates knew that he was under investigation for alleged sex crimes. Plus, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says corporations should stay the heck out of politics, but keep the money coming to the GOP. And later, we'll talk with St. Louis Mayor-elect Tashara Jones about her historic victory last night. And you won't want to miss tonight's absolute worst as a Republican attempt to spread disinformation about new voting restrictions falls flat on its face. The readout continues after this.
President Trump should pardon Michael Flynn. He should pardon the Thanksgiving turkey. He should pardon everyone from himself to his administration officials to Joe Exotic if he has to, because you see from the radical left a bloodlust that will only be quenched if they come after the people who worked so hard to animate the Trump administration. So I think that the president ought to wield that pardon power effectively and robustly. The president should pardon himself, his family, his administration officials, and any of his supporters who've been targeted. Any of his supporters who've been targeted, as those clips would suggest, Congressman Matt Gates had presidential pardons on his mind in the weeks after Donald Trump lost re-election. Now, the New York Times has revealed that in the final weeks of Trump's term, Gates privately asked the White House for blanket preemptive pardons for himself and unidentified congressional allies for any crimes they may have committed. That's according to two people told of the discussions. Now, they know that the White House viewed the request as a non-starter. Now that we know that Gates is the subject of a federal sex crimes investigation, he would have had ample reason to want a pardon from the president he defended so vigorously. The Times notes that it is still unclear whether Congressman Gates or the White House knew at the time about the inquiry. However, some Trump associates have speculated that Gates's request for a group pardon was an attempt to camouflage his own potential criminal exposure. And there were other hints that Gates may have known that he was under investigation, including his tweet naming any potential scandal Gatesgate just five days before the news of the probe first broke. But even if Gates wasn't specifically aware that he was under investigation when, according to The Times, he asked for a pardon, he had known since August that his friend Joel Greenberg was under indictment for child sex trafficking. It's not every day that your buddy is accused of engaging in sugar daddy relationships. So it might have been at least at least crossed his mind that he, too, could be under scrutiny. After all, Gates was close enough with Greenberg to describe him as his wingman, according to Politico, which reports that they had shared more than one girlfriend. Greenberg has denied the charges against him, and likewise, Gates denies engaging in the conduct under investigation. But he won't say when he first learned that he was under investigation, even when asked point blank by his favorite news network last week. How long has this investigation been going on? Do you know? I, I don't know. When were you first informed of it? Uh, you know, again, I, I, I really saw this as a deeply troubling challenge for my family on March 16th. Really on March 16th was when this got going from the extortion standpoint. With me now is New York Times Washington correspondent Michael Schmidt, who broke this story, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. And Michael, I want to start with you. I should note that uh, Trump today denied that Gates ever asked him for a pardon. Here was the quote. Congressman Matt Gates has never asked me for a pardon. It must also be remembered that he totally denied the accusations against him. That's Donald Trump talking. But your, your reporting it leaves a lot of questions open uh, for me. Um, so Gates allegedly, per your reporting, asked for blanket pardons and unidentified congressional allies. Do you have any idea or any reporting on who those allies might be and whether allies means members of Congress or congressional staff? Um, we wrote as much as we knew uh, about this, this request that was made. And it's, it's sort of interesting, if you look at Trump's response, Trump says that the that Gates never asked him himself. Our story specifically says that the request went to White House officials, and it was unclear whether he had engaged with the president himself. Now, 
Trump has been very quiet on the Gates issue since this came out uh, a little bit over a week ago. He said very little about it, basically just that that one statement. And, you know, there there looks like there is a sort of concerted effort to put some distance between the president and Gates. It's important to, to understand what Gates was looking for. Gates was looking for sort of like the ultimate pardon on steroids. Donald Trump really pushed the limits of pardons in ways and he did them. Uh, he, he wielded his pardon power in ways that that legal experts and, and lawyers were very surprised by, whether it was giving pardons to people that had not cooperated in investigations into him or donors or allies and such. What Gates wanted was basically a get out of jail free card for everything he had done in his life. And no matter what Trump did, there was nothing that that rose to that level in the pardons and commutations Trump gave. And let me ask you this follow up, because the other you know, sort of character in this is William Barr, who was very eager to protect Trump's friends whenever he got the opportunity. We know this investigation began under William Barr. Is there any reporting that William Barr might have communicated to the White House, to the president, the then president, Donald Trump, about the investigation of this ally of his in Congress? No, I have no evidence of that. And in regards to Barr, the investigation was open under Barr and Barr allowed it to move forward and gave essentially the approval for it to move forward. And, yeah. um, you know, in most Justice Departments, that would not be a significant thing. But in the way that Donald Trump politicized investigations, it does sort of make it uh, notable in this case. But there's there's no evidence that uh, there, there, there is evidence that Barr uh, allowed this investigation to move forward and would essentially have had to sign off on on yeah. on it because it was a, a special you know, sort of person, a designee being a national politician in the Justice Department's eyes. Yeah. And we do also have reporting. Um, and I believe it was uh, it might have been from you. It might have been Politico that Barr took steps to make sure he was physically distanced from Gates and not appearing with him uh, publicly. Uh, we've got Glenn. Uh, we got your shot back, Glenn. So I want to ask you about this other breaking story tonight. This just came out. This was CBS Evening News. So it broke literally uh, within the last um, hour or so. CBS News reporting that Gates' trip to the Bahamas is part of a federal probe into this sex trafficking um, allegation. Here's a little bit of it. Federal investigators are looking into a Bahamas trip Matt Gates allegedly took in late 2018 or early 2019 as part of an inquiry into whether the Florida representative violated sex trafficking laws. Gates was on that trip with a marijuana entrepreneur and hand surgeon who allegedly paid for the travel expenses, accommodations and female escorts, the sources said. Investigators are trying to determine if the escorts were illegally trafficked across state or international lines for the purpose of sex with the congressman. A spokesman for Gates's office said what began with blaming headlines about sex trafficking has now turned into a general fishing expert exercise about vacations and consensual relationships with adults. Can you sort of lay out for us the significance of that aspect of it? Because this is now allegedly travel outside of the United States. Yeah. And, you know, Matt Gates can protest all he wants. He can, you know, use his old boss's line of this is a witch hunt and they're going after him because he's an outspoken conservative, which I don't quite understand. Um, but but what is most telling, Joy, is that, you know, we can speculate whether he knew he was under investigation when he asked for a pardon. But that's almost beside the point, because he clearly knew he had committed crimes which is what prompts one to ask for a pardon. And the Supreme Court has actually given us some guidance that I think helps put 
what it means to ask for a pardon in context. In 1950, uh, 1915, the Supreme Court said that a pardon carries with it an imputation of guilt and accepting a pardon carries with it a confession of guilt. That's why a person cannot be forced to accept the pardon against his will. And, you know, ex asking for a pardon, you know, there, there are a couple of related concepts in the criminal law. There's consciousness of guilt and there's an admission of guilt. Consciousness of guilt is like when you hide incriminating evidence. That's not you admitting to the crime, but it does show your consciousness of guilt. An admission of guilt is just that. Either when you come right out and say, I committed the crime, or you ask the president for a prospective pardon to wipe your entire life clean of all criminal activity. If I were ever prosecuting Matt Gates, Joy, you can bet I would seek to introduce the fact that he asked Donald Trump for a pardon into evidence as a direct admission of guilt. And then we would have some robust litigation. But I'll bet a judge would say, you know what, there's Supreme Court precedent that supports this argument. So I'm going to admit it into evidence. Let me ask both of you this question. I'll ask you first, Glenn, and then Michael. With the on air on Fox, because, you know, people did communicate with Donald Trump through the TV. Does that count um, if you were prosecuting this case that he was on television asking for blanket pardons, which you could impute to me for himself as well? Everything you say, whether in writing, whether orally, whether broadcast, whether in a tweet is a potential admission. Any statement by a party opponent, any statement by a defendant that is relevant to the crime being tried is admissible as evidence. And listen, nobody was falling for him trying to masquerade the fact that he wanted a pardon by throwing into the mix the Thanksgiving turkey and Joe Exotic. I don't think Gates cared about those two particular right. animals or people. I think he wanted a pardon and he was trying to put a little bit of window dressing on it, saying, let's give it to some other folks, too, and maybe I'll get lost in the mix. And, and Michael, you know, now that we do have this new information that there's now sort of added um, potential criminality and we should say, again, he's denying it. But there is this new story out there. Can you just give us a specific on whether or not this request for a pardon, was it formal or was it informal? Was it a formal request to White House officials, or was it an informal, this is something that I need? So there is a, a formal pardons process where you go through the Justice Department and you have paperwork that is filled out. And that application goes in and it's examined by the pardons attorney. Um, it's important to know that the Trump administration basically ignored that process throughout the administration, sort of relied on their own way of doing it. So I don't so there's no evidence that he went through the formal process. But in a sense, that that doesn't mean anything in this case, because there was no formal process that was relied on. Um, the only thing I would say just, you know, in terms of, of Gates is, look, he, he has not been charged yet. Um, right. it's, it's a federal investigation. We, we only know so much. We're trying to peel back the facts as much as we can, but you know, it could be early in this investigation. Um, his associate, Joel Greenberg has been indicted on a range of charges. He faces a mandatory minimum of 12 years in prison. The federal authorities have a significant amount of leverage on him. Uh, Greenberg has hired a prominent, uh, Florida lawyer, Fritz Scheller to represent him in this case. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he has a status hearing tomorrow. So, you know, it's, a uh, there's still a lot more investigation to go. 
A hundred percent and a lot more reporting. I really appreciate you, Michael Schmidt. I'm sure we're going to continue to learn more about this. Uh, uh, Michael Schmidt, Glenn Kirshner, thank you both very much. And up next, wow, these Republicans think that they're so sneaky trying to pass laws that seriously restrict voting rights while claiming the Democratic Voting Rights Bill is a threat to constitutional sovereignty. Nope. We see you guys. You're not slick. Tonight's absolute worst is straight ahead. While Republicans whine about Dr. Seuss, baseball, Mr. Potato Head, and Coca-Cola, they're ignoring the existential threat the party is facing in the near future. Now, for years, they've relied on an American political system that reliably seesawed power back to their party during off-year midterm elections, which were characterized by a particular thing, low turnout. Specifically, Democrats and voters of color have tended to turn out in lower numbers during non-presidential elections. Then Donald Trump broke the GOP's Obama-era presidential losing streak, and his gross mismanagement, negligence, and racism just turbocharged an electorate that powered a Democratic whooping in the 2018 midterms and in 2020. Now, in the wake of this seismic shift, you would think that Republicans would have a come-to-Jesus moment and maybe think twice about following a guy who lost them the House and the Senate and the presidency. But nope, that would make too much sense. Instead, they went for option B, try to make voting harder. And they used Trump's delusional election lie as cover. Now, take a look at the Conservative National Review. It recently argued the republic would be better served by having fewer but better voters. We're seeing this play out across the country. Georgia's new law allows unlimited challenges to a voter's registration, requires ID for an absentee ballot, and expands the legislature's power over elections. Texas is considering a law that would, among other things, reduce early voting and prohibit drive-through voting. Unsurprisingly, the bills and laws target predominantly diverse communities. Democrats in Washington are looking to put a stop to that with the For the People Act, which would expand voting rights, reduce the influence of money in politics, and limit partisan gerrymandering. Now, Republicans know that this bill makes sense. In fact, The New Yorker obtained a private phone call between policy advisors to Mitch McConnell and several conservative groups in which they conceded that the bill was so popular that it wasn't worth trying to mount a public advocacy campaign to shift opinion. Instead, opponents will be better off ignoring the will of the American voters and just trying to kill the bill in Congress, which explains the intellectually dishonest attacks that we've seen from Republican politicians against the bill. It's the biggest power grab uh, since I've been in Congress. It will take away every state's ability to run free and fair elections. It sounds to me like the little red states like Mississippi are, if this thing goes through, are going to be powerless. I don't know that a Republican could ever win another national election. As long as I'm serving as governor, I will stand up against those who seek to infringe or deny South South Carolinians their constitutionally protected freedoms and liberty. Uh, Governor McMaster, here's a good piece of advice from a Princeton historian, Kevin Cruz. Quote, maybe you shouldn't use the state sovereignty argument as the Southern Manifesto, a manifesto that attacked the Supreme Court's 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education decision outlawing school segregation. Southern politicians saw it as an abuse of judicial power that trespassed on states' rights. And here's another good piece of advice. 
Uh, this one is from our friend Ari Berman, reporter with Mother Jones. Maybe the National Review shouldn't be parroting arguments that echo James Kilpatrick, another conservative and fervent defender of segregation, who wrote in the very pages of the National Review in 1965 that, quote, over most of this century, the great bulk of Southern Negroes have been genuinely unqualified for the franchise. For all those reasons, anti-democracy, anti-voting, and yes, Jim Crow Republicans are the absolute worst. And when we come back, the shockingly honest reason why the former president and current Florida retiree says that he takes issue with the new Georgia law. Now, it should come as no surprise that most of the brilliant Republican strategy behind voter suppression comes straight from a guy who allegedly cheated on his SATs. Lately, the orange-tinted retiree is spending most of his time firing off incoherent missives from the arts and crafts room of his retirement home in Palm Beach, Florida. Yesterday's dispatch, election day is supposed to be election day, not election week or election month. Far too many days are given to vote. You hear that, America? The leader of the Republican Party, for whom old Abraham Lincoln is surely spinning in his grave, doesn't seem to want you to vote. Perfect. Join me now. Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation, and Michelle Goldberg, columnist for The New York Times. Uh, my favorite argument, um, first of all, you know, forgetting Donald Trump, uh, my favorite argument um, about the Georgia law is the whining by all of these Southern Republican governors uh, and also um, senators that it's not racist. Here it is. Cue the tape. How is the bill even racist? If you look at it with just any form of neutrality, I mean, you, you can't spin that at the White House or, or the courthouse or anywhere else uh, around this country. I mean, it just does not add up. The president has made a very serious accusation. He has said everybody who believes in having an ID, showing an ID before you vote, is a racist. They play the race card morning, noon, and night. I am tired of it. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. I think it's cheap. I think it's sick for the president of the United States, Joe Biden, who's been a friend for years, to say that what they're doing in Georgia is Jim Crow 2.0. He's been a friend for years, except for when you were attacking his son, dude. Uh, you know, Ellie, you know, <laughs> let's take them seriously for just one moment. I mean, we're just asking how many bubbles are in a bar of salt. What does that have to do with race? Uh, what would be, explain to these folks, uh, please, for us, what's so racist about the Georgia law? Yeah, I mean, there's math on this, right? Like, and I, I, I know that Lindsey Graham, that sick man, um, doesn't believe in math, but there's math on this. And we know that when we do things like voter IDs, when we close down early voting, when we stop mail-in voting, we know that it disproportionately affects black and brown people. That's just science, Lindsey. 
look, all this is, is the, you know, when you look at something like the National Review article today from Kevin Williamson, last seen advocating for women to be hanged if they see, if they seek an abortion, they didn't do anything new. The Republicans are not doing anything new. They are columbusing the idea that any white man with two ducats to, scr to scratch together has had since the founding of this country, and that is a hemisphere of their own. All they want is a hemisphere where white people are the only ones that matter. We have tried in the Constitution four times to stop them. The 15th Amendment, which gave the vote, right to vote to black people. The 19th Amendment, which gave the right to vote to women. The 24th Amendment, um, which eliminated the poll tax. And the 26th Amendment, which dropped the voting age to 18. Four times in the Constitution, we have tried to expand the franchise and conservatives where they call themselves Democrats in 1865 or MAGA in 2021 have tried to stop us. And they've always failed and they're going to fail this time, too. And, you know, the thing about it is, you know, Michelle Goldberg, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, Ann Coulter used to, I don't know if she was joking or not, say women should lose the franchise because they vote too liberal and they just want all too much, you know, liberal stuff, you know. But there is this reality that Republicans are facing that is demographic reality, right? They tended to do better in midterms because you had fewer people voting overall and you definitely had fewer people of color. And then all of a sudden 2018 happened and they're like, oh, we got to change all this because now these people are voting in midterms. Then you have a special election and all of these black people vote and, you know, you get two Democratic Congress people, uh, senators in Georgia. And so they're, they keep sh reshuffling the deck because Democrats figure out their system. And I wonder if there's any further. I mean, there, there's it seems like there's no further they can shuffle the deck. I think they can always find ways to go further. I mean, we're about to see what's going to be what they're going to do in terms of this next round of redistricting. I'm sure yeah. that, you know, this Georgia law is not going to be the last. And obviously, it's no coincidence that they suddenly felt the need for this law after an election in which a represent in which kind of representation that they seem to view as their as their divine right right went to people uh oh they don't deserve to elect two Democrats and so all this I think we're losing Michelle oh no. Let's try to get Michelle's uh, uh, we're going to try to get Michelle's sound back because you just froze for a second. Let me play for really quickly Mitch McConnell. This was in yesterday on whether corporations should get involved in politics. This is rich. My warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics. It's not what you're designed for. You know, Republicans drink Coca-Cola, too. And we fly. And we like baseball. If I were running a major corporation, I'd stay out of politics. I'm not talking about political contributions. I didn't say that very artfully yesterday. They, they're certainly entitled to be involved in politics. They are. My principal complaint is they didn't read the darn bill. Yeah. Okay, Michelle, I'm giving this to you since we lost your shot earlier. Oh, my God. It's like, well, you know, I really didn't mean that when it came to giving money to me. <laughs> your thoughts. <laughs> Okay, so hopefully this works. But, you know, what's so amazing is that you were talking earlier about the, about the For the People Act. And one of the things that the For the People Act wants to do is curtail the influence of corporate money in politics. And the reason that Republicans have been so consistently against this is because they insist that corporations are people with First Amendment rights. This has just been absolutely foundational. To absolutely. conservatism until corporations started speaking out against their effort to restrict voting. 
And also when they decided, you know, we may not want sick people on our cruise ships. And all of a sudden, you're not a person. You don't have a right to stop people from coming on and infecting you with COVID. Are you crazy? Corporations aren't people. Ha! It's like they change their mind every time everything changes. Okay, uh, very quickly before we go, Ellie, I I know that you and I um, have both been, we've been talking offline about this, but um, Midwin Charles. Uh, we lost her uh, shockingly. I think everyone is pretty shocked out there um, about her very untimely death. This was a young, vibrant, uh, gorgeous, brilliant woman. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about her as well, because I know she meant a lot to you as a fellow lawyer, uh, as a fellow TV lawyer and somebody who advocates for all the good things, all the justice. Uh, I want to let you have an opportunity to talk a bit about her as well. I, I just wanted to say really quickly how much of a warrior that we've really lost um, this past this week. Um, Midwin, uh, many people know her from her trenchant analysis on TV. I think the first time I met her was on your show. We were like the three, only the three people who knew that Bill Barr was as bad as he seemed to be. Um, but she was that person because she came from such a in the trenches um, kind of legal background. This was an amazingly credentialed woman. Um, she's a clerk for the Sixth Circuit. She worked for Freed Bank, one of the top 50 law firms. Um, in the country, and then stopped that work um, and left a lot of money on the table um, to go and help people. Um, and so it was. It was. It's. It's such a. It's such a hard thing um, to 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 lose. Midwin was one of those people that you know. She's one of those lawyers that you call when you only had one phone call. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the Haitian American community and the Haitian American Law Association, I know, is also really grieving right now. Uh, you know, all my Haitian American friends have been calling and texting and it's really tragic. So uh, we love you. And uh, uh, she is now our ancestor and we and we and we love her and we we will hopefully her spirit will continue to stay with us. Thank you so much, Ellie Mistal, Michelle Goldberg. Thank you both. OK. And up next, we're going to turn this now to a positive uh, St. Louis Mayor-elect Tashara Jones will be here. This is exciting to talk about her history-making victory last night and her plans for addressing racial and social injustice. Don't go anywhere. She's coming up next. As a city, we've been surviving. We've suffered disinvestment, decades of violence, broken promises from our city's leaders, It's time for St. Louis to thrive. It's time for St. Louis to thrive. It's time to bring a breath of fresh air to our neighborhoods. Last night, the city of St. Louis elected its first black woman mayor, city treasurer Tashara Jones. Jones ran on a progressive platform promising to direct the city's coronavirus aid towards rental and mortgage assistance, as well as resources for those who are homeless. She also pledged to restructure the police department, reallocating its budget toward investments in substance abuse and mental health services. St. Louis leads the entire country in police killings per capita. And the city had its highest homicide rate in 50 years in 2020. So it's quite a big job that she has ahead of her. But I am very excited to be joined now by St. Louis Mayor-elect Tashara Jones. Lots of people wanted to talk to you tonight, so I'm really grateful that you uh, are going to spend some time with us for a few minutes with us tonight. So let's just get started. Um, Congratulations, first of all, um, on your victory. And let's dig into what you have ahead of you. Coronavirus cases in St. Louis, more than 22,000, nearly 23,000. There have been 458 deaths. Very high poverty rate, 21.8 percent. How do you even begin to dig into all of that? Well, Joy, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here this evening. 
you know, we have to tackle our problems one by one. I think the other thing that we have to that, that's within these numbers is St. Louis is one of the most hyper segregated cities in the country. Um, we are known for the Del Mar divide uh, and, uh, and people that live north of Del Mar. Ninety percent of the people that live north of Del Mar are African-American. And the first 12 coronavirus deaths were all black people. So, you know, we have totally neglected over half of our city and we cannot expect it to thrive if half of it is left to fend for itself. And you've now we've now passed at least the, the, the big stimulus bill. Um, and now there is talk of a, a big transportation bill. What could an infusion um, of, of federal money that could uh, end up in, 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 in your city? What could it do? What could you do with that? And that could totally turn St. Louis around. Uh, we have uh, been saving money uh, from uh, a local tax that we passed uh, to expand our Metrolink. Um, and uh, this infrastructure bill could be huge for us uh, to make sure that we can finally finish this project. Uh, we've updated the study to make sure that we are ready to be back in the, in the pipeline for federal funding. Um, and also, uh, you know, like I said, our, our, our city has a lot of poverty, and that's why we yeah. got so much money. Um, yeah. And so this is going to be a huge shot in the arm uh, to make sure that our people can not only survive, but thrive. Yeah. And, you know, we've been reporting a lot, uh, obviously, on the Derek Chauvin case, but also on other uh, police brutality cases. There was one um, sort of sort of infamous one in the city of St. Louis where um, some white officers beat a black undercover officer thinking he was a Black Lives Matter protester. Obviously, um, St. Louis is not far from Ferguson. C getting your arms around criminal justice, what kinds of reforms can you do uh, as mayor? Well, I think we have to address the elephant in the room, Joy, and 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 we still have two separate police unions uh, in St. Louis, one for black officers and one for white officers. And so if they can't trust each other, then how can they expect the public to trust the police? So we have to have these hard, uncomfortable conversations. I think we're overdue for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in St. Louis uh, because uh, we see and know the policies that have uh, kept our, our region back. And we have to embrace that uncomfortable past and uncomfortable truth uh, and also and, and embrace it so we can move forward. Yeah. And I, you know, I can't get away from the other elephant in the room is that, you know, you as a black woman are a rarity in terms of being a mayor in a major city uh, like the one you're in. Talk about what that representation means. I know what it means to me to see you, uh, but what does that representation mean in your view? I think it also means a, a huge representation for single moms. Uh, I'm the single mother of the most adorable 13 year old son. And he is the reason for a lot of th the things that I do in politics. I want to build a St. Louis where he is able uh, to walk across the street to my father's house uh, without fear of being shot at or uh, pulled a gun on, which yes. has happened uh, to yeah. him. I want a St. Louis where he's not afraid uh, of police officers because he once he found out, you know, what the mayor does and that, you know, the mayor's over the police, he, he immediately said to me, well, that means I'll be safe. His yeah. mother doesn't have to become mayor for his uh, for him to feel safe around police officers or neither should any child. Yeah, absolutely. Those are inspiring words. Uh, I'm inspired by you. Uh, May St. Louis mayor elect Tashara Jones. Congratulations. Uh, I know that you're going to do great things. Uh, very, very lucky. Uh, the city of St. Louis. I think they're very happy. They, they should be very happy to have you. So congratulations. Thank and be well. Thank you, Joy. Thank, thank you. you so much. Well, that ended on an inspirational note. That is uh, the readout tonight.
There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.